we profess with great simplicity that it is only through our God that leads us that we have that hope that when death's cold wave comes our way and when this life comes to an end, our God has promised to provide us with a home that will allow us the opportunity to be with him for all of eternity. And if you are not being led by the Lord, if you do not have him as your captain, if he is not your pilot, if he is not your God, if he is not your redeemer, hopefully something that we say this morning will change the way that you're thinking and maybe change your priorities, making it so that you say, it's time for me to make God my provider and my leader. And the only way that that can happen is through the Son of God himself, truly This was and is the Son of God, as we're going to talk about this morning. invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, which as good Bible students is not a surprise to you when we are talking about the crucifixion, because even though we're going to spend the majority of our time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Genesis is a good place to always begin with Bible study, and certainly on this particular subject. And so I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Grateful to be back with you after spending a week in Putnam County, Indiana, uh, which is home to none other than our Phil and Melanie and their good family. They are wanting Phil and Melanie back, and we have told them, you can't have them. They speak very highly of them, as we do as well, and so many of the brethren here uh, have been so kind to us in our time while we were away, uh, and while we're going to be away uh, from time to time over the next few weeks. I had a number of people ask me if I picked up one of these when I came in this morning. This is our visitor packet. I won't fill one out, but if you need my address, you're welcome to it. But it's good to be with you. It is always good to be back here. There is something truly special about Northfield. I know that you know that. Uh, and I suppose everybody is a little bit biased to their own congregation and that we're, we're really a special group, but this is a spectacular group, uh, and I'm glad that you've chosen to be with, uh, with us here, especially if you're visiting with us as we study together today. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your dedication to the Lord's will and for your love of the truth that binds us together. Our sermon today may be a little bit different in the sense that we're going to be looking at maybe six to ten very familiar texts, mostly in the Gospels, that are familiar in the sense that we know the story, we've read the account, we can even quote from some of these verses, and you know, if you've read them over and over and over and over again, you even know what the next verse is going to say before you get to the next verse. That being said, I believe that a study of the crucifixion is, number one, something that needs to transpire from time to time because it really is a central component of what binds us together. If it were not for the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his resurrection, we wouldn't be here today, or at least it would be uh, fruitless for us to be here today except maybe to make ourselves just feel better. But we're not here just to make ourselves feel better, though that's a byproduct of being together with brothers and sisters. We're here because of the redemption that came through Jesus the Christ, as we have sang about, as we've talked about, as we've communed about today. There are a lot of different uh, venues or different ways or places in which you could talk about the crucifixion. And I had a sermon maybe a year or so ago that I'm sure that you remember as much as I do about the benefits of the crucifixion. 
There are sermons about the nature of the actual death that Jesus endured. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I've got sermons on that, as I know many of you who have preached have studied that as well. But I want to look at seven aspects of the crucifixion or about the crucifixion that we need to appreciate and be reminded of because it reminds us of the love that God had for us, has for us, and will always have for us. And I want to start with this notion of the plan of the crucifixion going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And the first point that I want to make this morning is one that may not be surprising to you nor controversial among this good group of people, but the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not an accident. It was not a Uh Uh-oh, something bad happened in God's redemptive plan to where now he's got to come up with his plan B or plan C or plan D. This is God's plan. This is part of his eternal plan, even before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians chapter 1 would render the words. It is not an accident. And the reason that I kind of spoke about this being somewhat controversial is that there are people in the world, including religious people, who would say that this was an accident. This was not part of God's redemption plan. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, where I've asked you to kindly open your Bibles there to a text that is familiar like the other half a dozen to 10 texts we're going to look at today, it says, because you have done this, speaking to the serpent, there while speaking to Adam and also speaking to Eve, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And this is, it seems to me, the first major prophecy in all the Bible. Genesis is a book of firsts, and this is certainly no exception. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And so the Bible begins with the notion of a prophecy about the power of Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus, and the death in which Jesus would suffer on the cross for those hours so that you and I could have life. We read from Isaiah chapter 53 just a few moments ago, and Jason did a good job of taking us through some of those three or four verses that remind us of the fact that this is 700 years, give or take, before it would actually happen. Now, we know, as we'll talk a little bit about in the second half of our study, that crucifixion was not a foreign concept to the people of the first century in the Roman Empire, unfortunately in the sense that they viewed the gruesome death in public spectacles of others who had committed crimes, or at least individuals who had committed crimes, maybe more appropriately to say, because Jesus committed no crime. But it speaks about the Messiah, and it speaks about his death. Incidentally, if you're ever struggling during the Lord's Supper, because from time to time you may, Maybe you've got something uh, pressing this week or or the coming week, and the Lord's Supper in that five to ten minute period uh, is is a distracting period for you. Go back and read the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or go back and read the 22nd Psalm. Go back and read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and it will force you back to thinking about the things that you need to be focusing on in that particular time period. And let me also say here as a third aspect of this plan of the crucifixion that... 
for sin and hopelessness to be destroyed, the crucifixion was absolutely necessary. If you do not have the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you and I have no hope. If there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. And I read that in a number of passages. I read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at at great length. But I also am thinking of Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to make reference to two of my new favorite passages. I was joking with brethren in Greencastle this week that about every two to three weeks, I have a new favorite verse. And I think all of us should, should go through that process. As you're studying on your own, or you're preparing to teach a study, a class, or deliver a sermon. But in verse 14, it says of chapter 2, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, and that through the death... He might destroy him who had the power of death. And in case we were confused about who had that power of death, that is the devil. And then verse 15, which is actually part two of the statement of this sentence, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. If you want to underline things in your Bibles, maybe the phrase fear of death, because that's a very real fear among the people that you and I are trying to teach. And it may be that there is someone here this morning, particularly someone who's not a saint, someone who's not a baptized believer, someone who's not a Christian, and you may, you may be able to admit, I'm afraid of death. What we can do as Christians is move beyond that, not in a sense that we wish it on ourselves or certainly on those that we care about, but had someone come up to me recently and say, I'm not afraid of death. I know where I'm going. And that confidence, as we often say, makes all the difference. The plan of the crucifixion, the divine plan, the eternal plan that it was, is an absolutely important concept to make sure that we stick in our brains and never forget. I want to talk, though, about the nature of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, for example, and about crucifixion in a more general sense. And we're going to go outside of the Bible here for just a couple of moments and just uh, deal with some facts that are uncomfortable Uh, that are heartbreaking, that are things that uh, we could dwell upon. I remember a number of years ago, someone gave a a Lord's Supper talk that was supposed to be about four to five minutes elsewhere in the country, and it ended up being about a 20-minute talk, uh, which uh, created some buzz after services, but that's beside the point. Uh, But he went through and dealt with this, what we're going to deal with for about four to six minutes, and spent 20 minutes talking about this subject. Uh, It is not pleasant to think about how a person dies. It is not pleasant to think about how an innocent man who, as Brother Jason pointed out, was more than just a good man. Man, Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet. He was this great priest that is eternal, but he's the son of God. And so we've got to be reminded of the fact that crucifixion was capital punishment. It was designed for the most heinous of crimes, for people that were worthless in society, for people that were the outsiders to the community. And it was practiced and mastered by the Romans, but was practiced by many nations throughout history. And in Roman law, as you are likely familiar, and again, we could spend 30 minutes on these particular points, it seems as if it was reserved for non-citizens on a most basis, for slaves, for foreigners. And the reason I point that out is because even though the Romans had seemed to master the art of death and, and putting someone to death in such a cruel fashion, 
even they said, we're not going to do this to our own people. It's for the outsiders. It's the nobodies. It's the non-citizens that will suffer in this way. Death on the cross was typically not the result of blood loss, but rather of asphyxiation. And in fact, as good Bible students, you know that the two individuals that were to the left and to the right of Jesus likely died from that process having their legs broken, making it impossible or at the very least very challenging to breathe. And there are, I suppose, a long list of ways that I wouldn't want to exit this life, but this is one of those. But this is what our Savior did for us. And I made this point recently, and I want to make it again, that Jesus' plan and that God's eternal plan was such that Jesus did not go kicking and screaming to the cross, but he went willfully to take our place and to die for us. And... You may know, or maybe it's surprising to you, that rather than it being a mere few hours on the cross, and I use the word few very lightly because a few moments would be terrible enough, usually up to a week or at least two-thirds of a week while hanging there in pain and in misery. That's the nature of the crucifixion. And while we sometimes, I think, are wanting to talk about this particular concept because we want to focus more on the resurrection, and I, and, I, and I buy into that, I don't think it's inappropriate. And in fact, I would go to the point where I would say it's appropriate that we sometimes think about this is what our Savior endured. He did it for you. He did it for me. This was a horrible death. And as we'll conclude in our study together this morning, the nature of the death of Jesus on the cross, which is the most horrific thing in the world's history, is also the most blessed thing combined with his resurrection, which gives us hope. Which leads us to our third in our list of seven this morning, and that is the hours before the crucifixion. The Bible does a great uh, service to us and providing us with the events about the crucifixion. Incidentally, I've always found it very intriguing, ironic, interesting, whatever word you want to use, that when it talks about him being crucified, it's almost in a very passive, quick sense. And he was crucified, or, and they nailed him to the cross, or they put him on the cross, and then we move on to something else, which may be purposeful in the Holy Spirit to get us to focus on the things that matter even more, and that is a person being crucified in the first century would not have been that uncommon, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your view of capital punishment. But certainly, it was a powerful instrument to get us to the resurrection, which gives us the hope that we can enjoy. And so I want to look at three different pictures. And again, in the Gospel of Matthew, where I'd ask you to open to the 26th chapter, we're going to read maybe about 10 to 12 verses. That is very familiar territory. I may have said to you before, uh, what works for me when I partake of the Lord's Supper may not work for you. Some of you like to be silent in prayer. Some of you like to read the, the words of the song. Some of you just like to meditate, maybe with your eyes open or closed. There's no right or wrong way to go about doing that. I will tell you that my style uh, and what has worked for me, because uh, I can otherwise get a little bit 
scattered and confused and what's going to happen with the sermon today or maybe I've got something stressful happening in the next couple of weeks is I will go to one of the gospels almost without fail and read 12 to 20 verses and just kind of really think about and try to put myself back and looking at what Jesus did. And one of those texts is here in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, The 28 chapters of Matthew, this is the longest of the gospel accounts. But here in chapter 26, I want to read verses 26 through 29. And so we see right before the crucifixion, right before Jesus was going to be betrayed, right before all these things are going to happen that we'll talk about in just a moment, he shares this Passover meal and then institutes what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Supper. And so it says here in verse 26, as they were eating, and I want you to read the, the eight to ten, six to ten passages with those uh, fresh eyes that we sometimes talk about. Jesus took the bread. He blessed and he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, take eat. This is my body. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. And he said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for their mission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I I must admit, there's a little bit of mystery for me about verse 29. I I think I know where he's going with that. There's a couple of ways of looking at that. But the the thrust of this particular passage and the reason I brought this up is, you know, if, if I knew that within hours or within the day that my life was going to come to an end in a horrific fashion... I'm not sure I'd be spending all this time teaching. I might be wanting to say goodbye to my loved ones. And yes, Jesus is somewhat doing that. But he's focused on fulfilling the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel plan that he is going to establish. And so if you drop down just five or six verses here, verses 36 through 44, he prays in the garden. And this, again, is familiar to many, but some may not be familiar with what is happening here, where Jesus comes to a place called Gethsemane, a place that we read about and sang about. Sit here while I go and pray over there. Incidentally, if you've been given a sentence of death, probably one of the best things to do, strike the word probably, is to be prayerful. And you can be prayerful about a number of things, but Jesus knowing that he's about to go to the cross, says, I want to spend time in private, serious prayer. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful, deeply distressed. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, he said. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell down on his face, and he prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came back to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. He says, Peter, in my mind, almost with a sense of desperation, a sense of frustration, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so a second time, verse 42, he went away and he prayed. He says, oh, my father, if it, that this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them again, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words, the same thing. And he comes to the disciples and he says, are you still sleeping and resting 
Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, see, my betrayer is at hand. Which leads, of course, to the betrayal and the arrest, which transpires in the next couple of verses. And that while he was speaking, verse 47, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords, clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize and arrest him. Verse 49, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. If you want to underline in verse 50 in the New King James, what is the sixth word? But Jesus said to him, friend. I don't know if I knew if you were coming to arrest me and put me to death or someone that I care about. And you say, hey, how you doing, preacher? And I know full well what you're up to. That I'd respond by saying, how you doing, friend? But that's Jesus. That's the master we serve. Friend, why have you come? Spitty one. One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or, verse 53, do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen like this? Have you come out, verse 55, as against a robber with swords and clubs so as to seize me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple. You did not seize me. My understanding there is Jesus is saying, you've had ample opportunity. And I've always been peaceful. And you could arrest me anytime you want. But now you're treating me like I'm some threat to your society? All this was done, verse 56, so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And I think, in my own personal opinion, one of the hardest things for Matthew to write down were these words. All the disciples forsook him and fled. Because Matthew's talking about John and Peter and James, and he's talking about himself. How difficult this must have been to write years after the fact and reflect on your choice to forsake the Lord. And so in each of these events, you'll notice the focus is of Jesus and the hours before his death. And as if that wasn't worse enough or difficult enough, it leads to a fourth picture, and that is these trials before the crucifixion. And we'll take some time to breeze through three or four passages here, different ways of numbering the trials that Jesus endured. But I want to look at them in four particular sections. And so there in Matthew chapter 26, he appears before this council, the Sanhedrin. And we won't read all 12 of those verses. If you want to read through 57 through uh, pretty much the end of the chapter, you're certainly welcome to do so. But it says in verse 64, where Jesus could have maybe backpedaled or put on the brakes or said, I'm in trouble now. He throws gasoline on the proverbial fire, doing so in divine fashion by saying, it's as you said. 
Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that incensed them even more, that he would claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and be equal with God, as Philippians chapter 2 would help us to understand better. He would appear before the governor of Judea, a man by the name of Pilate in Luke 23. And if you want to turn over to Luke 23, we're just going to look at a couple of verses here. Again, time fails us to really read all of these verses, but we'll spend just a moment or two in Luke 23, where in verse 1, the text tells us the whole multitude of them arose and led into Pilate. This is mob mentality. A mob is after Jesus. And you know, when someone is an evil man and has done horrible things, we kind of come to expect mob mentality. In fact, if someone has done something heinous in our country and he or she is finally arrested, law enforcement goes to great lengths to protect that person from mob mentality so that justice can be served in a more, shall we say, civilized way. But here you have an innocent individual and a mob is following him. He stirs up the people, verse 5, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place, speaking about, verse 3, that he is the king of the Jews. And Jesus says, you say rightly that I am. He appears before Herod in that famous account wherein we read in Luke 23, verses 6 through about verse 11 or 12, that Pilate and Herod, who were uh, equals in some way in that they were both governors of various regions, weren't talking with one another. They weren't getting along with one another. And then Jesus united them, united in their hatred and united in the mistrials that were transpiring. And then he goes back before Pilate in what I call part two. And again, there are different ways of looking at the trials. But here in verses 13 through 24, you see where he appears before Pilate. And Pilate says in verse 16, here's what I'll do. I'll chastise him and I'll release him. I'll, I'll beat him up. I'll, I'll punish him. I'll tell him to knock it off, stop this teaching, and we'll scare him into submission. It'll make him uh, stop, hopefully, and it will appease the crowd. But they all cried out, and they said, we don't want this man released to us, the notorious robber and murderer and scoundrel Barabbas in verse 18. So for, verse 24, finally, Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. There's so many different things to be said about those trials. There's studies just in there, but I guess the big application or the, the big takeaway or the big point that I wanted to make is, do you see the attitude of Jesus in each of these trials? He's calm. He doesn't say much. In fact, Pilate actually says, you're not saying much, and that's not normal. And Jesus, in fact, would teach on that occasion as he did on every occasion. Jesus was, as we often say, the master teacher and even in the closing hours of his life, he was still teaching, using the opportunity to share the ideas of humility, humbleness, and devotion to the master, God the Father. Which then brings us to the scene of the crucifixion. 
In Matthew chapter 27, we read about a place called Golgotha. Uh, depending on the version that you're reading from or the language that you're referring to, one being more Hebrew and the other being more Latin, the idea of Calvary, it is called a place of skull. And appropriately so. And there's all kinds of conjecture. And some of you have seen this particular area where most likely or possibly Jesus was crucified. And whether it looked like a skull or whether it was a place where literal skulls were surrounding it, it certainly wasn't a pleasant environment. This is a horrible place. Nobody calls their, uh, their restaurant place of skull unless, well, maybe they're appealing to a different kind of crowd. Nobody says, look into our home, the place of skull. It makes no sense. It's scary. It's ugly. It's sad. And it's fitting that that's where he would go and lay down his life. In Luke chapter 18, just a couple of pages back from where we were reading a moment ago in Luke chapter 23, in Luke chapter 18, in verse 33, the text actually tells us that they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus making this prophecy or making this prediction, knowing what he was about to endure. In John chapter 19, in verses 1 through 3, it says the soldiers twisted a crown after scourging him, put it on his head. They put on him a purple robe, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. This scourging to beat up his back and to humiliate him emotionally or mentally was such that it would almost bring him to the point of death. In maybe a poetic sense of grace, he would spend, and I use the word only very carefully, a limited amount of time on the cross, perhaps because he had been beaten so severely by the time he got there on that day. And this was an occasion that Jesus was familiar with and Jesus knew about. None of this was a surprise to him. He truly is omniscient. He knows all things. And it's not like Jesus got into this situation and said, I didn't know this was going to happen. But indeed, he'd laid down his life for us. And he laid down his life for the people that don't like him. We are a pretty friendly group of people to Jesus. In fact, we sing the song, I'll be a friend to Jesus. But Jesus laid down his life for you, his friends, but he laid down his life for the enemies as well, those who have yet to name him and those who will never name him in hopes that they will repent and change. I thought there was something to be said about John chapter 19, verse 23 through 24. It says, the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments, made four parts to each soldier part, and also took the tunic. The tunic was without seam and woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, let us not tear it, cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And of course, John inserts by way of the Holy Spirit so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Incidentally, I don't know how many times clothes were taken on and off Jesus, but my guess is, is they were not very uh, ginger in their treatment of the taking off and on of his clothes such that every time they would lay a garment on his back, which was bleeding and open, and then take it off, it would start the process again of pain. This is the Savior that died for you and died for me. And of course, 
he would go to the cross. And as I made mention of a few moments ago, the Bible speaks very little about the crucifixion itself and just says he was crucified in passages much like Luke chapter 23 and other places. In our second to last observation, before we draw our lesson to a close, we come to the death of the crucifixion. Now, we made mention of the fact that death was usually because a person could not breathe on the cross. But Jesus died, and I put in quotes, more quickly. And we find that in Mark 15 or in John chapter 19, here in chapter 19 and verse 28, it says, Jesus, after this, knowing that all things were now accomplished so that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Incidentally, there's a great series of lessons you can do about those seven statements that are made by Jesus on the cross. He makes statements that are fulfilling prophecy or making sure his father's will is accomplished before he makes any sort of, and I'm going to use big air quotes, a selfish request. I'm not about to tell Jesus that he was selfish and asking for water, but he was not willing to say, I'm thirsty until everything was done that needed to be done, until the mission was accomplished, until his God's Father's will was done. And so in verse 29, a a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. My guess is, is the way that I said that it's not the way he said it. In fact, in other versions or in other gospels, he says, with a loud voice, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. While the other two were alive, John 19, 31 through 34, Jesus was already dead. And I wonder, although we have some vantage point in Luke 23, what the other two were thinking about Jesus dying in a quicker fashion than they? I don't know. I trust that if we're really curious, we'll have the opportunity to ask one of them, perhaps one day, for one of them says, is told, surely today, Luke 23, you'll be with me in paradise. And then I came across this a number of years ago, probably 25 years ago, and um, I thought this was interesting if you compared John chapter 19 and 1 John chapter 5, which we won't take the time to do. Did Jesus die of a broken heart? There's, there's all these scientific studies as to how Jesus would have died, and there's something to be said for blood and water coming out and about the pericardium and, and all those different studies. And that's not a, a rabbit hole that I'm interested in going down for more than maybe just a minute or two. But it is interesting that our Savior's heart physically would give forth blood and water out of his side and that his heart is broken for you and me when we do not obey him. Which goes back to exactly Hebrews 10 where Phil took us this morning where we trample underfoot the blood of the cross of Jesus when we choose to disobey him in any particular occasion. That brings me to this final concept, and this is my favorite point of the entire sermon, not because it's the last point, but because I believe this is profound. I think there's something to be said, and I haven't fully fleshed this out yet. I'm still working on this. But I want you to look at the two statements that were made 
that are recorded immediately before his crucifixion and immediately after, and our good brother Daniel read for us from Mark 15, which we'll look at here in just a moment. But I want to go back to John chapter 19. Your Bibles may already be open there from a, from a passage that we briefly looked at a moment or two ago. But Pilate makes this significant statement in John chapter 19. Let's go back to verse 17, and we'll read about four verses. Bearing his cross, Jesus went out to the place called the place of skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. And then Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, quote, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And this stirred a considerable amount of controversy among the Jewish leaders. For in verse 20, it says, many of the Jews read the title. For the place where Jesus was crucified near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, John records for us. And the chief priests of the Jews said, do not write the king of the Jews, but, quote, he said, quote, I am the king of the Jews. And you see all this, in, in most modern English, you have inner quotes and then outer quotes. And that's very important to make sure that you understand there in verse 21. And then 22, has always struck me, and I, I wish I could hear Pilate saying this, but then I don't want to hear it because then I'd have to have been there, and I don't know that I want to see this. But verse 22, Pilate says, what I have written, I've written. I'm not changing anything. I'm still working on fleshing this out, but just hold on to that. This is the last statement made by Pilate before Jesus would linger on the cross for those hours, and then pass away. And then Jesus dies. And so we go back to the account of the book of Mark in chapter 15. It goes to the sermon title that we are engaging in today. And Mark 15 that Daniel read says, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, in verse 37, after the veil was torn from top to bottom, truly this man was the son of God. I don't know about you, but I find it a little bit interesting. I wrote in my notes, I just wrote the word irony out in my notes. I'm not sure about this. The last public statement made about Jesus from a non-follower was this is the Christ, this is the king, paraphrasing a little bit. The first recorded words of anybody after the death of Jesus from a centurion, a Roman soldier, this is the son of God. Surely it's him. Is there something to be said for the fact that before Jesus died and immediately after his death, two, quote, non-followers are the ones who profess that Jesus is this more than a man that Jason talked about, more than a special guy, more than just a prophet. He is the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. Maybe there's something to be said for that, and maybe there's something to be said for the application that we're making in our closing moment or two, and that is each of us have got to make that statement and testify of him today. You may never have to say those exact words, but I've made a point over the last few weeks, I've really kind of made this point a number of different places and here two or three times now. 
we profess Jesus as the Son of God, and we confess him as the Messiah, as the Christ. And we believe that with all of our hearts, and we do so, as Phil pointed out in Hebrews chapter 11, by way of faith, but we do so because we have faith in him and what he did for us thousands of years ago. And what he still does for us today in making that constant intercession on our behalf. That's the testimony of the crucifixion that matters the most. This is not just a man. This is the son of God. And we as Christians, whether we are members here or elsewhere, you who are not Christians who maybe are thinking about becoming a Christian this morning, we are in the process of testifying that Jesus is the Christ. Truly, this was the Son of God. We implore you to make that confession of Jesus Christ today. Therein is hope. Without it is no hope. And I know that sounds like a bleak message, but be, the reason it is is because it's a bleak message. Without Jesus Christ, there's no hope. Well, that everything that we've talked about today, not because of its presenter, but because of what it involves, is such that we have hope, and it makes all the difference, and it can make the difference in your life. We have individuals this morning who are present, I'm confident, who uh, are not Christians and have never made the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And we would welcome the opportunity to witness that and to hear that, and you will bring us to tears of joy by making that confession in Jesus this morning. If you want to do that, we're happy to help you and to assist you. If as a child of God, you're not living correctly, and there needs to be some sort of course correction, some sort of change made in your life, we'd welcome the opportunity to help you as well. If we can help you spiritually, let us know. I'll be stand while we sing.